0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is God's word. Be God. Amen. Please
1: I love mystery novels. There are probably a number of different reasons why mystery stories, particularly British detective tales, intrigue me, but one is surely the fact that a a good mystery involves a smattering of different stories, different characters, different uh, vignettes and locations that, that seem somewhat scattered and overwhelming until at the very end they are woven together and you find that there's a clarity and there's a connection to that pastiche that has played out over a couple hundred pages. And as we've worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 and now Matthew 6, we come to these verses where Jesus offers what at first glance seems to be a similar pastiche, a number of different comments that seem pretty scattered and uh, pretty varied, fairly disconnected. He's talking about treasures and he's talking about eyes. He's talking about masters and then birds and flowers. And it it looks as though it's four or possibly even five different discussions that, that, frankly, don't have much to do with each other. But I think if we actually patiently wait and listen to what Christ is saying, and if we keep our eyes upon his word, we catch in the final couple verses there all of the varying threads of this discussion being brought together. And so I want to begin by fixing your eyes on verses 33 and 34, which are going to orient our time in God's Word this morning, where Christ says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in verse 33. And then in verse 34, he goes on to say, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And I want to suggest that those two words... Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. Those two words or calls orient and structure the entire passage. And so I want to begin this morning by turning your attention to the first few verses, beginning in verse 19 and reading through verse 24, where we hear Christ calling us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, or in other words, to seek wholehearted devotion. And Christ uses a number of metaphors here, three, to address the, the kind of devotion that he's interested in. He speaks of how we're to treasure him alone, of how we're to look upon him alone, and how we're to serve him alone. And it's worth exploring each of those images and how they cut across the grain of our experience, of our context, of our, our very heart's inclination, I think. He begins with this remarkable call in verses 19 to 21 that we would store up treasures in heaven. Heaven, of course, being the place where our Father is, the place where God is, the place defined by his presence. He says, don't don't lay up for yourself treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust Rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Notice he doesn't attack possessing things. He doesn't attack possessions or stuff, material reality. He confronts our tendency to acquire and to obsess, to treasure up material possessions, to Place a certain value and priority upon the accumulation of stuff. Building up storehouses, Jesus will later say, is something that is not allowed in the kingdom. But you've got to liquidate that and you've got to put all your resources in heaven as it were. We see here that in the kingdom of God there is no diversified portfolio. And this cuts right against the grain of our culture and of our hearts, doesn't it? We are folks who like to avoid placing all our eggs in one basket. We're trained to do so. Warren Buffett famously ran a test, a bet, where he offered over a course of years for someone to actively manage stocks in their own portfolio, and then he would simply put his money in a a diversified fund, and over the course of years, they'd see who fared better, the person who's actively choosing to buy and to sell, and then He who sat there and didn't touch it for several years. And many of you will know that the results were staggering. First of all, almost no one showed up to take the bet, which tells you very much what we think in this culture of diversifying our bets and hedging our bets. And then the one person who did show up got completely demolished and lost all his money in the bet. Because we realize that if you put all your eggs in one basket, if anything goes awry, you're left holding nothing. But Jesus tells us, you don't put a little here, you, you don't invest a little there, you store up all your treasures in God's presence. You store up all your treasures in the kingdom of heaven. You do not diversify your portfolio, but you wholeheartedly invest yourself in God, seeking him alone as your treasure. And then Jesus immediately jumps to the second second image of, of sight and the eye. And this is probably the most confusing one in the way that he phrases it and puts it. But if you look at verse 22, you see that he says that the eye is the lamp of the body. And if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. It's crucial to catch that the actual image being used there for health or healthiness is Single-mindedness. If your eye is singular, then your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is scattered, if your eye is diffused, if your eye is lingering and moving across, glancing left and right, then your body will not be full of light. You will not be given illumination, but you will in fact be darkness. Oh, how great the darkness, Jesus goes on to say. But if if your eye is fixed, If you're single-minded in focusing on God and his light, then you will be full of light. Jesus is saying that in the kingdom of God, there is no texting while driving. That you are to look to God alone. As we sang earlier, we keep our eyes fixed on you. That we don't look to God and to the horoscope. We don't look to God and to the wisdom of the culture. We don't look to God and to our own intuitions or our own desires, but that everything runs through the filter of God's Word. Everything has to be regulated by God's wisdom revealed in Jesus Christ. Everything has to be judged ultimately as it runs through the, the sieve of God's written word. And then third, Jesus turns to this image of service, that you serve only one master. He says in verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or money. Bob Dylan, of course, famously saying that you've got to serve somebody Getting at this idea that that all of us are going to be about the task of living our lives structured and based on the principles and priorities of someone or some system. You don't have to like that person or that system. It's easy to think that that service means you are trying to, to please and thus you're finding joy in someone else. But you can try to please and match up to standards and absolutely hate that person or that system absolutely despair at your ability to meet its expectations. You can be trying to serve the parent whom you can never please. You can be trying to serve the boss whose expectations are absolutely never met, but who nonetheless guides your every waking thought. You can be trying to serve your own Desires and yearnings which as soon as you've had your fill, you find your stomach yearning for another fix. We can despair, we can fail to find joy and happiness in what we serve, but we do serve something one way or another. And Jesus says, you're to serve me, you're to serve God. You're not to, to serve one on one day, another, on Sunday, you're not to serve one here and another there, but you are to serve the Lord alone. You know, these three images remind me of a, another verse where God is speaking of the call to wholehearted devotion, and he uses, again, flexible language to get at all the different ways that, that, that we imagine our lives being offered up before others, In the first commandment in Exodus 20 verse 2, the Lord has said to Moses and through him to Israel and to you and to me that you shall have no other gods before me. And it's a fascinating statement that the phrase used there, before me, is the most flexible, ambiguous prepositional phrase in all of ancient Hebrew. It could be translated in front of me, beside me, above me, amongst me, or around me. If if he wanted to say simply before me, there was another available prepositional phrase that would have been a lot more simple. It's very straightforward and obvious that that God is saying, you don't have any other God anywhere near me. That the ambiguity is intentional. And Jesus, in similar fashion, is, is taking these different images of the treasure and of the eye and of our service and he's saying, whatever it might mean to parcel yourself out, whatever it might mean to give some unto the Lord and to hold others back for yourself or others, you've got you've to do away with that. God is seeking wholehearted devotion. And so you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now that, that phrase, his righteousness, is one that we've been talking about week after week. The idea of of justice or righteousness, two English words. They express the same word here. And and you remember that that Damien has pointed out on a couple of occasions that righteousness here refers to what God expects, the the justice of life in God's kingdom, what we've been calling the good life of human flourishing, the life where we live according to the reign and the justice of Christ our teacher and our king, our savior and our guide. And, and God's justice is a total justice. There are, there are a lot of people in the world who are happy with partial justice. As long as you stay within the lines, as long as your car doesn't weave off the road, as long as you don't egregiously or obviously harm another, You can stew inside. You can be flippantly paying attention to this, that, and the other. But Jesus says in Matthew 5 that it's not simply that you don't murder your brother or your neighbor, but you don't hate them. Jesus says it's it's not simply that you don't commit adultery, but that you don't look lustfully upon another. Jesus' justice goes so far. It extends into our internal lives not merely our external performances and so when Jesus is saying we're to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness he's speaking of how God is calling for this wholehearted devotion that takes in not just what we do with our hands and our feet not just what we do with our words but what we actually feel inside what we yearn for Our intuitions and emotions, our affections and our desires. That God wants you to treasure Him with all that you are, and God wants you to look upon Him and fix your gaze with everything that you have, and that God wants you to serve Him with every resource at your disposal, holding nothing back. It's a a long way for Jesus to say what He he says elsewhere is a summary of the law where he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, a a century ago, the the famous theologian Abraham Kuyper came over to the U.S. from the Netherlands, and he was giving a lecture, and he famously said what's become a a rather uh, oft-quoted remark, that there's not one square inch on this world of which Christ doesn't say mine and claim it as Lord. And we can add to that, that claim that Jesus is Lord over all and he wants to have his way in every sphere of the world, not just in churches, but in communities. That he would also say there's not one nook or cranny of yourself that he doesn't want given holy in devotion to him. It's not just cosmically true, but it's true of the Christian that God wants wholehearted devotion of your treasuring, and of your watching, and of your serving, that it be wholly given unto God, that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, that's the first thing we see here, and it's rather blunt. It's without qualification. (laughs) Jesus simply demands everything of us, just as God demands everything of the world, that we would in every sphere of life bow the knee and treat him as Lord, giving him everything. But there's a second thing here that I think is rather remarkable, because if you're anything like me, you hear that and you think, well, I'm not sure this is terribly good news. That sounds awfully constricting. That that God would want to get up in my business in every area of life is a little alarming. We are folks who are trained, we are used to Giving space. If a a friend or a family member is confronting me or challenging me or or simply before me in need of something, I always have in the back of my mind the notion of running, of finding space. We'll we'll talk about this tomorrow. And, And we are well trained and studied in I'll call you back. And we'll get to that another time. The notion of someone who would be in our face and, and claim to receive every, everything we have all the time is alarming. It's challenging. I think it's, it's fair to say that it, it really cuts against the grain of both our culture, but also of our well-practiced intuitions in our, our hearts. And so it's remarkable that Jesus goes on to say a second thing here. And beginning in verse 25, we see that to match his call for wholehearted devotion, he offers this remarkable, this remarkable word that we fight faithless fear with the promises of God. So let's look at those verses. He he begins by saying, therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothing? He He calls us away from rush and hurry, as we've sung earlier. He calls us away from anxiety and faithless fear. He calls us away from what Calvin calls excessive care. Now, it's worth noting a couple things right off the bat. First of all, that that care can be good, and you ought to show up to your job on Monday. And you ought to go about the task of brushing your teeth at night and in the morning You ought to go about the task of of laundering your clothes and of of doing those things that enable life to work on a daily basis. And so Jesus isn't somehow suggesting that that you sit on your couch and you wait for God to take care of everything. He's not calling us away from care of every sort and responsibility of an appropriate form. We also need to note that anxiety doesn't all come from lack of faith, though Jesus is about to harp on a lack of faith. And that there are experiences of of anxiety that find roots in other situations. And so the silver bullet to somehow dealing with every anxiety isn't to always treat it as a lack of faith. And, And there are appropriate recourses to all sorts of other remedies for situations where we fall into disorders of anxiety. And Jesus isn't somehow suggesting we simplistically reduce everything to one concern, But, but, Jesus does say that we all have a tendency, a preponderant tendency to excessive care and to faithless fear. Not that every anxiety falls into this or is rooted in this, but that so much of our experience flows out of a heart that fails to trust God. Jesus will addressed this in a number of ways. He pulls out a couple of images. The birds, the lilies. Think about just that image of the lilies, which comes up here in verses 28 and 29. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they, they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even King Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, Lilies don't simply appear here. It's a a regular term that gets used throughout the Bible and and oftentimes it it finds its way into Christian worship and liturgy where regularly before we read God's word, as we pray, we recite the line from Isaiah 40 and, and repeat it elsewhere, the grass withers and the flower or the lily fades, but the word of God stands forever. Throughout your Bible as you read the prophets of the Old Testament talking about the lilies or the flowers, it's always a sign of what is fleeting, of what will, what's going to fall to the ground and die. You can come to my front yard and observe that if, if you want to see what that looks like, of, of what looked like it had promise and delight but then quickly wilted and faded away. But notice what, what is only transitory what's but for a season, God still takes the care to array it with glory. Glory greater than the greatest of Israel's kings. Glory that so catches the eye and staggers the heart. And you are not transitory. You will not wilt away. How will you not also believe that God will array you with glory? remarkable glory and brilliance and beauty that so far exceeds the flower that's there only for a season. Jesus is taking this biblical image and and he's turning it upside down. That God is, is going to care for us. God is going to meet our needs. God is going to give so excessively and liberally as to overwhelm us, going far beyond the care he shows to the flowers of the field. Jesus, of course, has just taught us in the Lord's Prayer, which we looked at a couple weeks ago. God cares for every facet of our lives. Think about what we ask in the Lord's Prayer. We address God, his name, his kingdom, his will. And then we get down to the real business of addressing our needs before God. And we ask for daily bread. And we ask for the forgiveness of trespasses or debts before him. And we ask for him to keep us from temptation. I think so often, if you're like me, you're tempted to reduce the promises of God, the provision of the gospel, to dealing with sin alone. But God teaches us to pray for your stomach too. The the God who willingly sends his son to the cross to save you from your sins and reconcile you to him, he doesn't think it's too small a thing for you to be trained to pray for your daily bread. And we do well not to reduce God's provision or his promise. We sometimes get it into our heads that faith is the call to entrust your conversion and maybe judgment day to God. And that in the intervening time, which is, oh, most of your life, God wants you to be wise and prudent and go about it thoughtfully. But faith, in a biblical sense, involves every facet of your life. That the God who did unite you to Christ when you were converted and the God who will come and intercede that you are justified on judgment day is the same God who promises to care for you, to watch over you, to provide for your every need. Not only to give you the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, but daily bread. That God's care is unqualifiedly broad. And it's inexhaustibly gracious that he dispenses daily what we need. And he cares for our every, our every want. And that's precisely why it makes sense to be wholeheartedly devoted to him. Think about that line in Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that Jesus is unpacking. This idea of wholehearted devotion. It's, it's worth remembering it, it follows on the heels right after and it flows from perhaps the most famous line in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It was a staggering statement. They'd come from Egypt, a land of many gods. They are about to stroll across the river into Canaan, a land of many deities. And having come from that and about to enter into that, God reminds them that there's only one God. There is only one Lord, and that means there's only one provider. You see, in the ancient world, the gods were all niche deities. Just like the, the vendors that you pay off at the end of the month. You have to write a, a check for the house, a check for the insurance, a, a, a check for this and a check for that. You've got to pay off each and every person because they all provide only so much. And if you look to one vendor and you say, well, I, I couldn't use that because this was wrong. Say, That's somebody else's problem. You've got to go talk to them. That was, that was the religion of the ancient world, that there was a God of the harvest, there was a God of war, there was a God of health and of fertility and this, that, and the other. And you gotta, you gotta put an egg in every basket and keep them all happy so that life keeps going and you flourish. And against all of that, God levels it and says that your Lord God is one. And so you put all your eggs in one basket and you trust him for everything. You don't go for Forgiveness of sins here and for daily bread there. But you learn to hit your knees before this God and this God alone. You learn to take every day's troubles to this heavenly Father. And you learn, you learn to take every request in Jesus' name because he doesn't simply accomplish eternal salvation, but he saves you even now here on earth so that every gift you receive is a blood-bought gift. Received because of what Christ has done. And so we're reminded here in the second portion of Matthew 6. In verses 25 to 34. That therefore we're not to be anxious about tomorrow. Because God is the God of tomorrow. And God is the provider of our every need. And our anxiety flows from a lack of faith. That that God will pull through. That God is capable. That God is interested. You see this. In the way in which Jesus confronts this worry, the way in which he addresses it as being little faith in verse 30. If we worry about tomorrow, we're likened to those who have small faith. We may believe big in judgment day, but if we don't trust God for Monday, we're called those who have little faith. And Jesus, Jesus really gets in our face at the end. You know, I, I take great heart in this as someone who is prone to sarcasm, but, but Jesus can bring it when he decides to bring it. And if you look at verse 34, he says, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Now that's the stupidest idea on the face of it, right? Tomorrow, tomorrow will be anxious for itself. It's on the face of it absurd, and that's precisely the point. Jesus is saying, your excessive care is just as absurd as the idea that tomorrow's going to take care of itself. In other words, he's, he's deconstructing my deep desire and longing to have everything sorted out before the fact, to have gamed out every scenario, to have planned for every situation, to have built up storehouses so that I can make sure I'm okay. He's saying, that's absurd. And it's just as absurd that the, the day ahead will take care of itself. And there's something all the more sensible. You can just trust that the God who makes the flowers beautiful is going to be a God who provides you glory. You can simply know, as Romans 8.32 tells you, that he who didn't spare his own son but graciously delivered him up for us, how will he not also with him give us all other things? And that's why we find that as we come together and we worship and we practice the art of praying for our needs week after week, we learn how to trust God day after day. That the rhythms of dependence become intuitive and we are trained anew to turn to God, not ourselves, for daily bread. That we're formed afresh to turn to God for the the beauty and the brilliance that we so long to make. That we repent And that we cast our cares upon God believing that his promises so far exceed our own potential. Jesus calls us to something radically big. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. A righteousness that gets into the business of every area of our lives. But he does it because God promises a grace and a gospel that is equally big. A grace that that meets not only our eternal, but our earthly needs. A grace that provides not only for judgment day, but for all the troubles and trials of this very day. And if he is trustworthy, if he is one whose word is truth, and if he is one whose desires for us are as glorious as the beauty of the lilies of the field, then why would we not cast our cares on him? And why would we not find it to be absurd to take things into our own hands or to turn to other gods, to hold anything back? There's a logic to faith. There's a deep and profound order to the call of wholehearted devotion because it's completely rooted in the fact that God is one and that God provides for everything. And that in the gospel of Jesus, he doesn't give us a meager gift but he gives us the riches and the fullness of his kingdom, that he fills us with all the fullness of God in Christ, as Paul will say at the conclusion of Ephesians 1. He's prayed about so many blessings. He's prayed about adoption, forgiveness, purification, wisdom. He's he's pointed to all these many blessings that God provides, and he has to conclude finally by saying that, that we don't have words big enough for it, for what God wants to give you. And so he has to finally sum it up as being filled with all the fullness of God. That every need, every nook and cranny of yourself would be provided for by his grace. That all the disparate threads of your life would be drawn together. So that there's a harmonious logic to the trial on Monday morning as with the worship on Sunday. To the joy of the highs and the sorrow of the lows, that in all the various moments that make up the pastiche of your walk, we would find there is a a deep order and there's a singular logic that they're all brought together, that in every case, God wants to be all in all, that in every case, God wants to be the giver and the provider, that in every circumstance, God wants to bless and to give richly and gloriously, And that in every case, God therefore asks that we bow the knee and we open wide our mouth that he would fill it. Let's pray and ask that as we take his word and we run to his table, he would instill in us rhythms of that kind of dependence and trust because he would write deep in our hearts the beauty and the power of his promise. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word. You call us to be still and know that you are God. And you tell us that in returning and rest you shall be saved and quietness and trust shall be your strength. As we sing of you and as we come to your table to be fed by you, would you write deep into our hearts that longing and that yearning to cast every care upon you, to take every trial and temptation, every circumstance and sorrow in the name of Jesus to our God and Heavenly Father who who cares for all and who wants, as he arrays, the glory of the lilies in the field to make us beautiful and good in Christ and who has summoned forth the world out of nothing, who wants to bring blessing and righteousness out of the darkness and decay of our hearts. And so we thank you for a great Savior And we thank you for a promise as wide as our world. And we thank you for a resolve that is rooted in eternity. That we can turn to you expectantly. That we can confess before you penitently. And that we can hope in you wholeheartedly. We pray that by your spirit you would help us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.